listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may be seated, church. Let me say good morning and Welcome, uh, also from Clint and myself and all the leaders here at the White House campus. It's always great to gather in the Lord's house and to open up His Word uh, with you this morning. But you've all had that moment where you're driving down the interstate, or at least riding in a car, come up over the hill, and there's just a sea of taillights. You've opened up that Google Maps app, and it is red as far as you can see. And then you notice the exit coming up. And you know the tension. It's do I sit here and do I take my chances that everything will clear and will be okay? Or do I gamble and take that exit? And in our car, it always goes really well. Because whatever decision I want, Marla affirms it. We never argue about it. You know, nobody ever gets upset. Do whatever. The thing is, you know, we've all been there and we're wondering, what do you do? Because the problem is, no one ever sets out and goes, you know what, man, I hope this trip really takes us a long time. Man, I hope that, man, it uses more of our time to get there. And Man, getting there just quickly, that's just a waste. Because we love the shortcut. Sometimes they pay off, and you might take that exit, or you might not. And uh, you arrive quicker than maybe you normally would. But for most things in our life, at least it seems this way, that the things that really matter, those take time. It takes time to build relationships, at least real meaningful ones. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes time for that to happen. Education. I know some of you are ready for that to be over, but education, it takes time. Learning the ropes or how to be effective in your career. Some of you do things that, man, if I was to show up on Monday morning at your job, I'd have no idea what to do. It takes time to develop those. But life is full of opportunities that we'll see this morning about taking the shortcut or the shortcutting the process. And we're going to see this in David's life this morning where he's going to face the temptation that you and I will face every single day, it seems like. And it's called the temptation of the shortcut. So we're in this Life of David series. If you have your Bibles on your device, we're going to go to 1 Samuel 24 today. Three chapters again today, so a lot of heavy lifting. But in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, he is going, David will excel. David is going to make like an A plus with like extra credit on facing temptation. But then in chapter 25, we're going to probably give him a C minus. I mean, this dude's going to pass. But it is going to be by the skin of his teeth. In fact, it won't be because of him. It'll be because of someone else. But he rebounds, chapter 26. David, once again, is going to get an A+. So uh, hopefully this morning you'll be able to relate to David. So your first Samuel 24, or for our praises in the group, 1 Samuel 24. Do you remember where we were? Here's what's happening. Saul had took his army, and he's... Charging up one side of the hill in 23. David and his band of mighty men, they are running for their lives. Saul is about to sink his teeth into his prey 
when all of a sudden someone comes running up behind the army of, or, uh, army of Saul, yelling, hey, the Philistines are attacking, the Philistines are attacking, and Saul turns the army around. And what a providential moment. We began in that chapter, the Philistines were the enemy, then all of a sudden God uses them to save David and his men. So that's where we are, uh, picking up in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 24. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, we're not even told who wins, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And here's a great thing about En Gedi this morning is that you could travel there today. It's a place you can actually walk, you can experience it. And En Gedi is this place, let me show you the map, just so that we kind of know. So you got the Mediterranean Sea, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. David has been to Adullam. He saved Kalia. He's down in the, the Zeph area, the wilderness of Hebron. But he's now in En Gedi, right on the Dead Sea. But this is a place that is surrounded by desert. There's lots of sand, rocks, and there are very few trees. Very desolate. But it sits high above the beautiful Dead Sea. And you can see it there off in the distance. But inside this desert area is this oasis. There is this beautiful waterfall. Sometimes it's flowing more than others. But along this way... This is the place where David writes many of the Psalms. In fact, you're, many of you are probably familiar with Psalm 42. It's the, the deer pants for the streams of water. This is where David is when he is writing this because there are these pools of cool, refreshing water. But all along this canyon area are hundreds and hundreds of caves. So David is seeking refuge in some, one of these Caves, And we see in verse 2. So Saul's going to take 3,000 of his chosen men, so the best of the best, out of Israel. And he went to seek David and his men in the front of the wild goat's rock. So it doesn't take Saul long, and he's quickly back at David's throat. 3,000 men. So David is outnumbered 5 to 1. Then in verse 3, when he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself, or yours might say to cover his feet. So David and his men are hiding in the back of this cave. Saul's been marching, and nature calls. Saul looks up, he surveys the land, and he picks a cave. But he goes on to say, Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of of the cave. And what we have is another of God's providential moments. Of all the caves Saul could have chosen, he picks the one that David and his men are hiding in. But think about what this must have been like. So you're with David, you're with this band of mighty men, you're in the back of this cave, it's dark, but you can see all of a sudden a man comes walking up, you realize it's Saul. Man, they had to be thinking, man, this is it. We're about to see 3,000 men kind of block the entrance of this cave, shooting fish in a barrel kind of thing. Then this is it. But the men never come. And all of a sudden, they watch this king turn around, and he begins to take off his robe, and he squats down, looks out at the Dead Sea, and you realize he has no idea you are there. 
And this is the obvious conclusion had to be this. David, this is it. Man, we could not have planned this out any better. This is our moment. Because look at verse 4. And David said to his men, or David's men said to him, Here is the day, this is it, which the Lord said to you. You remember, David, behold, I will give you your armed enemy into your hand, and you shall do with him as it shall seem good to you. So the men, they see this as a great opportunity. God has brought the king to them. In fact, the only time he would ever be alone, the only time he's going to be by himself, and he comes to the same cave where they're hiding. He had to be thinking, what are the odds? And they see this. Man, we're looking here. What could be easier? What could be better? Man, this is the end to all of the troubles. You're not going to have to run anymore. You'll finally get to be king. But notice what David does. He has the promise, David, you will be king. And now he has the opportunity. But in verse 7, or in verse 4, then David rose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So here's kind of what happens. King comes up, nature calls, probably takes off his robe, sits it to the side, and he begins to... Take care of business. As they would say, the king is on his throne. So he's there. And uh, all of a sudden, he might have even laid down to take a nap. So David sneaks up and he cuts off the corner, just the end, of Saul's robe. But notice what it does to David in verse 5. And afterward, David's heart, or immediately his heart, struck him. Because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And that means he was grieved. He was convicted. And if you're reading this, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? I mean, all he did was cut off the corner of Saul's robe. I mean, almost kind of like just making fun of him. But in verse 6, we find out why. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. And here's the key. The Lord's anointed. And he put out his hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So Saul is still God's anointed, meaning his set-apart, his uh, consecrated king. So David sees this as an act against the king, Saul, is viewed as an act against God himself. This is how closely they were connected. He's still God's chosen. He's still God's anointed king. And it isn't for David to decide how this goes down. But not everyone sees this the same way in verse 7. So David, mine says, persuaded his men with his words. And he did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up, left the cave, and he went on his way. This word persuaded, it's, it's really an aggressive word. It means to tear apart. You know, it's that moment where Saul, I mean, David lets his men have it. He gives them an old-fashioned tongue lashing to prevent them from attacking God's anointed. He uses his words to stop them from killing Saul. So here we have the very first temptation of the shortcut. So the question is this. Is God delivering Saul into David's hands? 
David already has the promise. You could go back to 1 Samuel 20, verses 13 to 16, or 23, and you see that David already has the promise. But how the kingship would come to him is another matter. In fact, David realizes an important lesson and a principle here that we'll see this morning. And here it is. God's will must be achieved in God's way. Meaning this, that the end results that that God ordains, they must be reached in a way that God approves of. But the temptation is this. The temptation is to take the shortcut. To take things into our own hands and in our own power, in our own timing. But the how is just as important at the what. And I know we're all guilty of this. And you could come up with a lot of scenarios. Think about if you've got children and you're still trying to teach them to obey. Man, there is a right way to get them to obey. And we've all done it. And there's really wrong ways to get them to obey. Getting a diploma or an education. That could be God's will for your life. And you can either do it by working hard and putting the effort in. Or by cheating. Providing for your family. Man, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. The right way would be do it honestly, with with integrity. But man, you can also cheat your way and dishonestly provide for your family. So the truth is, is that God's will must be achieved in God's way. But the temptation, it's, it's to take the shortcut. And here the shortcut would have been walk up behind Saul and take him out. But that was not God's way. So think about it with, I don't know, think about it with our own lives. Or, or think about it in maybe what we might say in our life as believers, our Christian life. You know, the goal of the Christian life, we could probably boil down to say, in every aspect that we do, everything that we are, it would be to reflect Christ. Whether that is in our marriages, uh, our parenting, our friendships that we have, dating, all kinds of relationships, in your business, our church. And we call that sanctification. It's that moment between when we are justified and our eternity is set. There's nothing we can do to change that. And that in-between time to where we hit glorification. Where Christ will come or, or we go to meet Him and eventually we will be given glorified bodies. But this process in between is called sanctification. Us becoming more like who Jesus is. But listen, let's be honest. It's hard. It's difficult. We get tired. We get weary of trying and trying again and messing up. So the temptation is to kind of look for just an easy fix. Because that's what we want. Man, I need this to happen, and I need it to happen now. So we might fall into the thing of going, you know what? Well, I know what I need to do. I, just, I need to go to church a few times. Or you know what? If I could just say a few more prayers, or you know what? I'll just slap some bumper sticker on my car, and man, I, that'll, that'll help me be more of a Christian. I even heard this week, I, it made me so furious, and you know me, that I, I get into this cycle where I watch really bad theology on TV, and it's just horrible. But there was a necklace you could buy. This necklace was called, I think, something like the bloodstones. Jesus is on the cross, and his blood ran out onto these stones, and now they've got these replicas of these bloodstones that you can wear. And this was, this was, I think, them trying to get us to buy this thing. 
went something like this. If you really want your Christian life to be meaningful, just buy this necklace. I mean, we fall into these things that, oh, there's just this easy fix. And if I just do this, then, man, quickly things will turn around. Well, we see that with sanctification, it doesn't happen in one quick moment. There is no shortcut. And this means that we are all a work in progress. Meaning, listen, I'm a work in progress. I have not arrived, but neither have you. Meaning that we must constantly be patient with each other on this road of sanctification. Sometimes people are going to be further along than you are. Sometimes you're going to be further along than others. So when we're upset, we're offended, we're hurt, we need to be reminded ourselves that there is no shortcut to sanctification, that we are all a work in progress. So Saul leaves the cave, walks out, takes care of business, moves on. Imagine the moment, and here's what happens. David steps out, he bows his face, he holds up the corner of Saul's robe. Can you imagine how Saul felt when he realized that David could have taken his life? But David promises in the scriptures that he says, Saul, I'll never harm you. All the lies you've been hearing, they're not true. And all of a sudden, Saul hears all of these things, hearing that David is not out to get him. David is not there to harm him. And listen to Saul's response. You'll pick it up in verse 16. Saul lifted up his voice. It even says that he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, and you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he, will he let him go off safely? And the answer would be, of course not. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. So we see this kind of change of heart. David was faced with this temptation of the shortcut in the cave. The temptation would be, you know, to make things happen in his own timing, in his own power. But God's will must be achieved in God's way. And so here, David gets an A plus with extra credit. I mean, he excels at learning this principle and following it. But don't current victories always guarantee future success? Well, we would think that until you turn to 25. We see David again. Now, Samuel died. That's all we hear. And the Israel assembled and they mourned him. They buried him at the house of Ramah. But then David rose and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon who had business in Carmel. And this man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. But he was shearing his sheep at Carmel. Now, the man, his name was Nabal, and he had a wife whose name was Abigail. Notice the difference. So, he's rich, he's got all these things, gives us his name, but with her, she's discerning, she's beautiful, but the man, he's harsh, badly behaved, and he was a Calebite. So, you got Nabal, he is... He's rich, but he's crude, he's harsh, he's, he's ill-tempered, he's, he's a selfish man. But he's married to a woman named Abigail that is discerning, she's sensible, she's 
kind. She's beautiful inside and out. And we might think a match made in heaven. And you read verse 4. So David, he, he heard in the wilderness that Nabal is he's shearing his sheep. And that's going to be important. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus they shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace be to all that you have. For I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did not harm them. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on the feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servant and to your son David. So here's what's happening. David and his men, they, they've been out fighting various tribes throughout the land. And, and even in the wilderness. And in doing so, what they're doing, they're actually protecting all of the people around. Especially the shepherd because they're fending off all the enemies. And so what happened, according to the custom of the day, when it says that he is shearing sheep, that meant payday. When it came time to shear the sheep, you would do that, and it was common to set aside a portion of the prophets to pay those who watched over your shepherds. They watched over them. When it came time to shear the sheep, you took some of the proceeds, and you would pay them, almost like a tip, for kind of watching over your shepherds because you couldn't be everywhere. So David sends his men to see if he would provide them some food. But in verse 9, But David's young men came, and they said to Nabal, In the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. And get this, he says, Who's David? But notice he says, Who is the son of Jesse? So he knows who he is. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? And give it to the men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away. They came back and they told David all of this. So this man refuses and he insults David. Now you've all heard this term overkill. Well, notice what David does in verse 13. David said to his men, Every man strap on a sword. And every man, one of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So talk about over here. He's going to take 400 men to squash one fool. But David, here's what we see. David has lost control. He's absolutely lost control. I love how one man titled this next section. He said, it's a fool with too much money, made to look better by a smart wife. And listen, Maybe not all the money, but made to look better by a smart wife. We've all been there. Look at what happens in 14. When the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he, he railed with them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything. We were with them in the fields as long as we went with them. They, will, or they were all a wall to us, both on night and and by day, all while we were with them, they kept us with the sheep. Now therefore, know this, and consider what you should do, for the harm is determined against our master, against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him, and he won't listen to anyone. So then Abigail, 
made haste, meaning went quickly. She took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five sheets of, of uh, parched grain or roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on the donkeys. So 200 loaves, two wineskins, five sheep cut and quartered and cooked, five sacks of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisin, 200 fig cakes. This is a woman that could get things done. And she does it without her foolish husband ever finding out. So here's what she does. She quickly, she goes off and she meets David on the road before he gets her. She, she intercepts him. She pleads with him to not come and do what he has said on. This woman, she acknowledges that her husband is a donkey. She says, listen, I know that about him. She apologizes for him. She even accepts the blame. And what we see is David sees the error of his actions. So here's what Abigail does. Abigail saves the life of her husband but she also saves David from doing something that he would regret for the rest of his life. You know, sometimes women, we're going to need you to step in and stop us from doing something foolish. But notice how she does it. We're going to see two things here. One about Abigail, then I want you to see one thing about God. Notice how she does this. It says that she came and she bowed down before David. Meaning, she came humbly. In her humility, not acting superior or prideful, but she came humbly. Then her perspective, she said, listen, David, as I look at you, when I see you, I know I see the next king. So she saw David as this work in progress. And that she knew that if he did this, it would haunt him forever. But then her loyalty, you notice that in the same way she's fighting for her husband's life, but she's also fighting for David. She never gave up on either one of them. She's fighting to save her husband's life. She's fighting to save David's conscience and his integrity. So David, he recognizes his error. He realizes that he was giving in to the temptation of the shortcut. Instead of letting God deal with Nabal and letting vengeance be God's as it tells us, David was going to get justice himself. But then the second thing is this idea of, of restraining grace. And if you are in your Bibles there, here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 26. And I want to point out, uh, down to verse 39, you're going to see four statements all about the same thing. In verse 26, it says, As the Lord lives and as your soul is, because the Lord has restrained. In verse 33, he says, Who has kept me this day from bloodshed? Verse 34, he goes on to say, Who has restrained me from hurting you? And then verse 39, at the end of it, he says, And he has kept his back his servant from wrongdoing. Meaning four times we're introduced to this idea of restraining grace. And listen, we often talk about grace, and we should. But often we talk about grace in the aspect of it, something that we don't deserve and, and something that we could never earn. We would say salvation, it's by grace. We don't earn it and we could never deserve it. But there is another aspect of God's grace that maybe we don't think about enough and that's God's restraining grace. Restraining grace is this. Listen, we've all made choices and we've all sinned 
And we've paid for it, at least in some way or fashion in another. But one of the most devastating things God could do is you read about it in Romans 1, verses 22 and 23. One of the worst things God could do, it says this, claim to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. He's talking about making idols. Therefore, in verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to dishonoring their bodies and among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator or creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Meaning this, one of the most devastating things God could do is to turn you and me over to our sinful hearts. This means that there is many times That God's grace is restraining you and it's restraining me. Meaning, we've all done something. We've all, you may have been in that thing. You know you're doing something you shouldn't. But then all of a sudden, something happens that prevents you from going forward with it. That's God's restraining grace that is preventing you from being worse than you are or you could be. And this should help us, first of all, to not be judgmental. It should drive us to repentance. Meaning we can easily look at others and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. But the truth is, there is no sin that you and I are not capable of committing. There is no sin that we are above. We realize this judgment flies out the window. So God is actively working for us by restraining us. So God used Abigail to prevent David from carrying out his revenge and his anger. So she returns home. She finds her husband. He's partied too hard. She lets him sleep it off. Then she tells him what was going to happen. In verse 37, this is amazing. It says, Then in the morning, when the wine had gone out and he had sobered up, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Meaning, He had a stroke, and he couldn't move. Ten days later, he dies. And then in verse 39, you see this idea that David recognizes what had happened. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at his hand and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Meaning God's restraining grace. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal, On his head, the David sent, and he spoke to Abigail, and he took her as his wife. And so once again, we see the temptation of the shortcut. It was to take things into his own hands, in his own timing, to seek revenge. But God graciously restrained him. So this temptation, man, David gets a C-. minus. I mean, he passes, but if it wasn't for Abigail, he would have failed. But then we go to verse 20, or chapter 26. The Ziphites, once again, they went to tattle on David. Go and tell Saul where David is. So Saul's going to gather 3,000 men again. Late one night, David and Abishai sneak into Saul's camp. And in verse 7, it says this. And David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. And notice, here he is again. It's like his... His security blanket or his passy. 
with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner, the army, lay around him. So that's his personal bodyguard. But Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth. It'll just take me one stroke, and I will pin him and end it all. So he's asleep. There's the spear. Bodyguard is next to him. And Abishai sees this as an opportunity. In fact, he had to be thinking, this is why David asked me along. So David now faces another temptation of the shortcut. But look at what he does this time in verse 9. But David said to him, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and he will perish. For the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear in your hand and that jug of water and let's go. So they sneak out of the camp. They get a safe distance away. And David yells down, Hey Abner, you're asleep on the job. Notice what I have. I have your king's spear. Saul looks up. And once again, Saul repents. David's got to be thinking, same song, different verse. David had the opportunity to end all of his troubles, to even get revenge. But here we see God. he allowed God to be God. For this temptation and shortcut, and I think David gets an A+. But David has learned that there is constantly, it seems like, this temptation to take the shortcut. But God's will must be achieved in God's way. So the encouragement or the challenge this morning is this. Resist the temptation of the shortcut. But it's not always easy. It's not always uh, comfortable to do this thing. So what do we do? Look to David's son. Because years later, David is going to have a son that's going to face a very similar temptation. You find it in Matthew chapter 4 where there's this man named Jesus. He's in the wilderness And he's there with Satan. Satan takes him up to the mountain and he says, Look out, I will give you all of this. All of these kingdoms are yours. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. So here's the same thing. Jesus had the promise. He knew that that was going to be his. But the how. It was promised to him, but it wasn't going to happen by him bowing down to Satan. It was going to happen by the humiliation of of the cross. When that becomes our focus and we see, listen, in our own power, we could never resist the temptation. But there's one that has went before us and his spirit now lives in us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.